on the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about some things about the Church of Christ that we ought to know. Yeah, we found an Internet post uh, where someone was describing lots of different religious organizations, and they made a, took a shot at describing the Churches of Christ and what we believe and what our history is. And uh, kind of interesting that it, it's, it's, a, I think, a relatively well-written piece, accurate in many respects, uh, misses the point in a few places. And we just want to go through a list of 10 things to know about the Church of Christ. All right, right. all 10 in one hour. Here we go. We're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn. Say hello, Dad. Great to see you, Jacob. Good to see you. Kyle's behind the controls, as usual. It's good to be Steady hand behind the controls tonight. Glad you're here, Kyle. And glad that you're listening on the program tonight. We hope to hear from you. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. And also in the chat room to the bottom of your video feed, if you're watching us live on the program tonight, sign in and comment there. Yeah. uh, Remember, we like to send an update out to you every week to give you an idea of what our topic for discussion will be on the Virtual Bible Study. You can get on our update list by sending us an email to questions at collegeu.com. Just put add me to the list somewhere either in the in the subject line or in the text, and we we will get you updated. For instance, today to our update list, we sent out this link. Now, we found this link at a website. It's just simply called Christianity.com. Okay. And there's a section there in that website where they try to describe the, the the views and beliefs, the history of numerous religious organizations. And so they're not picking out or picking on churches of Christ. They're just trying to give information, I think. And I was actually pleasantly surprised that in some respects they've done a reasonably accurate job of describing what we believe and do. They're a little off on our history, and we'll talk about that. Uh, so they made 10 points. The title of the, of, the, of the article is 10 Things to Know About Churches of Christ and Their History and Beliefs. And I'm going to just read these real quickly, and then we'll try to explain each one as we go. Okay. Number one, Churches of Christ arose from the Restoration Movement. Number two, the founders believed in adhering solely to the Bible. Number three, the churches of Christ are autonomous congregations. Number four, there are over 15,000 individual churches of Christ. Number five, churches of Christ are governed by a plurality of elders. Number six, churches of Christ believe in a process of salvation. Number seven, churches of Christ baptized by immersion only. Number eight, a cappella singing is the only music used in worship. Number nine, churches of Christ have a distinctive plea. Number 10, most members of the churches of Christ live outside the United States. Okay. So some of those, I think, are relatively unimportant. For instance, where the members of churches of Christ live, 
either in the United States or outside the United States. I don't know that that matters much, but we'll comment on that when we get to it. But let's start out with the first one, Jacob. The Churches of Christ Arose from the Restoration Movement. Again, this article is found at Christianity.com. I gave the link in our update. If you just go to that website, Christianity.com, and say 10 things to know about the Churches of Christ, I think the article will come up. The author is a, a fellow by the name of Brannon Debert. Uh, and so his first point is the churches of Christ arose from the restoration movement. I want to read just a little bit of what he says here. The American restoration movement of the 19th century began with the merging of various independent contingents to return to apostolic Christianity. Two were of critical significance to the advancement of the movement. The first, driven by Barton W. Stone, started at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The other, second, started in western Pennsylvania and was headed by Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell. The two movements agreed on numerous uh, decisive concerns. Both saw restoring the early church as a path to Christian freedom. Both believed that solidarity solidarity among Christians could be accomplished by using apostolic Christianity as a basis. However, early in the 20th century, the Restoration Movement broke apart into different groups, primarily the Church of Christ, Christian Church and Disciples of Christ. Despite being influenced by the Restoration Movement, individuals of the Church of Christ do not consider themselves as a new church originating near the beginning of the 19th century. Rather, the whole movement designed to rep- is designed to represent in modern times the church first established on Pentecost in AD 30. The strength of their conviction rests in the renewal of Christ's original church. Now, that last paragraph, I think, is what's really important there, Mm -hmm. because we do not trace our beginnings to the Restoration Movement. We do not credit Barton W. Stone or Thomas and Alexander Campbell as being the founders of of the Church of Christ. He's going to use that word founders in the next point. We don't believe they founded the church. We believe the church was founded by our Lord Jesus Christ. It began on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And we are just simply trying to be that church. And so it's, it's, it's not a, we are not part of something new. We are actually trying to restore something old. Well, well, that's what the word restoration means. And so it'd be somewhat of an oxymoron to say that there was a restoration movement to restore New Testament Christianity and it began in the 19th century that 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 would be a, that wouldn't make sense yeah same same thing you might say with a car you know maybe we had an old model t maybe a 1920 what 1927 model t and and uh, we got together and we were going to restore that model t would we say that the model t arose from our restoration movement in our garage no it started back in 19 in the 1920s but we're just restoring it to what it was like when it was new. Yeah. Same with the church. Yeah. So, again, and I, I think he, he, he hit the nail on the head in his description when he says we do not consider ourselves as a new church originating in the 19th century. Rather, the whole movement is designed to represent in modern times the church first established on Pentecost. And so uh, that that is that is accurate. Now, we, you know, we, we acknowledge uh, Barton W. Stone, Thomas Alexander Campbell, and a number of other men in the early and mid-19th century. And so that would be the early, 1800, early to mid-1800s. 
they they had a desire to get back past all of the denominational innovations and changes that had occurred. And they believed that that the religious world could be united if we simply all went back to the very beginning of Christianity. That was a great idea. It was the perfect idea. It, it was the right idea. Now, th- those guys were just men. They were fallible men, and they actually weren't right on every subject. Yep. We acknowledge that. We, we we hold no allegiance to those men other than to say they were on the right track. They were headed in the right direction. I'm not sure they got all the way there, but they were certainly headed in the right direction. But interestingly, Churches of Christ existed way before the Restoration Movement. Do you remember, Jacob, several years ago, and I meant to go and look in, in our archives, we interviewed a, 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 a fellow from England named Keith Sisson, yeah. Sisman. Sisson or Sisman? Sisson. Uh, I remember that program because I didn't get to stay here for the whole thing. Okay. Our son was running around here, and he hit his head and busted it open. We had to go get stitches. You had to finish that by yourself. Oh, I don't even remember that part. We were in the emergency room while you were interviewing him. I got here. Scott started, and a few minutes into it, here comes. I forgot. I I remember that happened. I I forgot it was on that program. That fellow was so interesting. He he wrote a book. He's, He's now passed away. He wrote a book entitled... Traces of the Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And in England, he was able to trace back as far as history allows one to go in England and found examples, evidence uh, of people in England practicing simple New Testament Christianity. Uh, And so we believe the church has always existed. There was a movement to try and get more people to think that way. But we believe there's always been Christians who were just simply trying to follow the Bible. Uh, Here's some examples. A fellow named Dr. William Robinson, who was principal of Overdale College in Birmingham, England, wrote, In the Furnace District of Lancashire in northwest England, there existed in 1669, during the reign of Charles II, a group of eight churches of Christ. Most of them are not now in existence. An old minute book has been found of the year 1669, and it shows that they called themselves by the name Church of Christ, practiced baptism by immersion, celebrated the Lord's Supper each Lord's Day, and had elders and deacons. There was also a Church of Christ in Dungannon, Ireland. I'm not sure I'm saying that. Dungannon, Ireland, in 1804, in Allington, Dingmanshire. Uh, in 1739, John Davis, get that, 1739, that's a hundred years before the Campbells were doing any of their work. John Davis, a young preacher in the Fife District of Scotland, was preaching New Testament Christianity 25 years before Thomas Campbell, who was Alexander's father, was even born. Alexander Campbell was born in 1807. So there's evidence that churches of Christ were around way before this restoration movement. Uh, there are historical references to Churches of Christ uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, 1779, Edinburgh, Scotland, 1798, I can't say this, Crickseth, North Wales, 1799, Tubamore, Ireland, 1807, Manchester, England, 1810, Dublin, Ireland, 1810. Uh, There was a Church of Christ formed in Jackson County near Bridgeport, Alabama in 1807 
and continues to meet. That's the year Alexander Campbell was born. The Philadelphia Church of Christ existed at Morrison, Morrison, Tennessee, as early as 1810. Alexander Campbell was three years old. William, there's there's a tombstone at the well-known Cane Ridge meeting place just north of Lexington uh, uh, or near uh, Lexington, uh, Kentucky, near Paris, Kentucky, uh, the Cane Ridge Meeting House. There's a tombstone there to uh, mark the burial place of William Rogers. William Rogers was born in Campbell County, Virginia, June 7th, 1784. He removed with his father to Cane Ridge, Bourbon County, Kentucky, April 1798. He united with the Church of Christ at Cane Ridge in 1807. He died February 15th, 1862, in the 78th year of his life. Notice, he united with a Church of Christ at Cane Ridge in 1807. 1807 is the year that Thomas Campbell was born. So, again, all of that goes to say, these these fellows didn't start the Church of Christ. Uh, the Church of Christ existed long before they were even on the scene. And we really believe it exists has existed ever since Pentecost. People just doing what the New Testament teaches. They don't have to have a creed book. Now, if it had a creed book and it had a constitution or something like that, uh, that men had written, then we'd say, well, it couldn't have existed before that. There was no creed book. But with this, it's the Bible. It's the instruction book that was given in the first century. And so, therefore, it, it only stands to reason that people throughout time who respected the scriptures were studying what the Bible said and doing it. That's what faithful people throughout time have done. It didn't start in the first century. That started way back at the beginning. Faithful people hear God's word and do it. And that's what Christians are doing today is looking at the Bible and following it and making it their standard for their practice. We've got several emailers. Let's get to them quickly, Jay. We're going to have to hurry to get through all of this. Kent in Georgia says, The one true New Testament church was established by Christ on the basis of God's scheme of redemption as prophesied in the Old Testament, and it came to existence on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We need to be careful not to confuse the restoration movement with the Church of Christ. Those who brought this movement into reality had a sincere desire to restore the New Testament church to the lives of those who heard their message. However, they were not the founders of the New Testament church. Neither did they desire to even claim to begin a a new church or begin local churches of Christ. Seeking to restore the church is not the same as initially building the church. Only Christ is the founder, builder, and foundation of the one true church of Christ. As an interesting side note, we have a sincere appreciation of the goals of those seeking to restore the New Testament church. Not all of them were consistent with their initial goals concerning this attempt at restoration. Some never did obey the gospel of Christ and thus were really even never members of the Lord's church. All right. Chris in Georgia says... Great to hear from you, Chris. Yeah, Chris. Thanks for email. The Church of Christ began in the first century when Jesus established it. The restoration movement simply caused more people to start seeking the truth and striving to obey it. The church has always been and always has had active members. Thank you, Chris. Jim in Kentucky says that the idea that churches of Christ arose from the restoration movement is false. The church was built by Jesus, Matthew 16, 18. The term itself is found in the Bible, Church of Christ, Romans 16, 16. Ample evidence exists to demonstrate that congregations known by the term Church of Christ existed in England and New England in the U.S. long before the 1700s. I have a copy of a gravestone from a burial ground in Boston, Massachusetts, mentioning the name of a man named Jacob Elliott, who was a deacon in the Church of Christ who died in 1690. 
He's, he's attached to the picture. I have a photo of a plaque identifying a church of Christ in Rumney Marsh from 1710. Sounds soggy. The, 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 do what? Sounds like a soggy place. <laughs> the community of Rumney Marsh is now known as the city of Revere, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Two examples of identifying Church of Christ before Stone or the Campbells were even born, or the Campbells even migrated to the U.S. And Dwight and Michelle in Iowa said the Church of Christ, as noted in the Scriptures, did not start from the Restoration Movement. It began in the Book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And Mohan in Illinois says it is false that the Lord's Church uh, began with the Restoration Movement. He said it began in the Book of Acts. Thank all right, for that great, long. great. I uh, think good, good comments, one and all. All right, time for a break, and when we get back, we'll get into some more of these things. Well, what do the founders believe? Well, we'll talk about that. That may be a, a misnomer there. The founders. Uh, we're going to get start on that on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. Here's a quick thought. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2:10. Sometimes people ask, "Why am I here? What's my purpose?" Well, the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul that we are created for good works, designed by God from the foundation of the world. What good works will you do today? Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Grace is giving to another what they don't deserve. Mercy is not giving to another what they do deserve. In times like these, it helps to remember that there have always been times like these. If you're too busy to pray, you're much busier than God ever intended for you to be. Man, wish I'd said that. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. Back on the program, looking at this article, 10 things to know about the Church of Christ, some things that are accurate, some things that are not, or some things that may need to be clarified a little bit. We're looking at that on the program tonight. Number two on, in this article... Again, go to Christianity.com to find the article. Number two says the founders believed in adhering solely to the Bible. He says churches of Christ seek to follow the teachings of the Bible, being the only source to find doctrine. Churches of Christ commonly see the Bible as historically authentic and accurate. Their method, their method to the Bible is inspired by the assumption that the Bible is sufficiently plain and simple to render its message obvious to any sincere believer. Okay. I really like most of what he said there, except to claim that the founders are the ones who believed this principle. Yeah. Actually, that's a principle that's been governing Christians since the first century. In Colossians chapter 3... Verse 17, written, obviously, in the first century, the Apostle Paul instructed Christians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, excuse me, verse 17, 1 Corinthians three seventeen. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians three seventeen. So this idea that this didn't come up, and I know who he means by founders. He's, he means Barton W. Stone. He means Alexander Campbell and, and, and several others who, who lived and worked in the early, mid-1800s. 
they're not the ones who originated that concept. The concept, as he states it here, is relatively accurate. The Bible is the only source to find doctrine. It is historically accurate and authentic, uh, and we and we and we base our assumption on the fact that the Bible is sufficiently plain, simple to render its message to any sincere believer. All that's true, but that that idea did not originate with the so-called founders during the Restoration Movement. It, it originated uh, with God, and uh, God inspired Paul to write in Galatians chapter 1 that we can't teach any other doctrine. Anything that's different from the Bible uh, would condemn us. Uh, we have to teach what the Bible teaches, and what the only what the Bible teaches. We can't go beyond what the Scriptures reveal. Yeah. Kent in Georgia says, though, again, those who formulated the Restoration Movement were not the founders of the Church of Christ. They were calling for a restoration of the Church of Christ. The basis of this movement was following Bible authority in all matters. As to whether or not these individuals were consistent with their message will have to be determined on an individual basis in view of the New Testament of Jesus Christ. All right. Thank you for that, Kent. Chris in Georgia says the founder is Jesus. And yes, our goal is to adhere to what the Holy Spirit teaches in the Bible. That is all we need. Amen to that, Chris. That's all we need. Jim says um, the founders believed in adhering. So, uh, again, not quite true. As the founder, Jesus Christ was was the word. But yes, in this sense, we are to adhere strictly to his word. If you love me, keep my commandments, John fourteen fifteen. If you lo- abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, and it shall be done to you, John fifteen seven. You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, John fifteen fourteen. It would be hard to be a disciple of Christ if we refuse to follow his word. Well, that's what Christian means, isn't it? A disciple or follower of Christ. And so if we're not going to follow what he said, if we're going to differ and diverge from what the scriptures teach, then that, by definition, would make us not disciples of Christ. Thank you for that, Jim. All right. Uh, Dwight in Iowa says, we have the Lord as our founder. That is the chief cornerstone. Yes, we believe in adhering solely to the Bible. No man-made creed will save us. Acts 4.12, there's not salvation, neither is there salvation any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. John 8.31 and 32, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth as we know it is the word of God. And Mohan emphatically <laughs> says human beings were not the founders of the Lord's church. Christ was the founder. Okay, great. Good comments tonight. Great, good comments. We've got radio silence in the chat room tonight, but we've got lots of folks in there signing in from coast to coast. I see um, I see Brian out there in California. Grant and Janie are down in, on vacation in Florida, uh, and they've signed and in I tonight. I think Robert is in Florida. Robert's uh, in Florida as well. Yeah, Dwight and Michelle, there's no water anywhere near them. Yeah, right they're in landlocked the in Iowa. Country. Yeah. yeah, and we got Ethan up in Indiana, So, uh, uh, and Sarah's here in, in Columbia. So uh, sign in there and share your comments with other listeners. All right, let's go quickly. we got to hurry, Jacob. Number three, the churches of Christ are autonomous congregations. Now, here's what, here's what this author says about the churches of Christ. He says, following the design of structure found in the New Testament, churches of Christ are autonomous. Their collective faith in the Bible and adherence to its teachings are the main bonds which connect them together. There is no primary headquarters of the church, no organization superior to the elders of each local congregation. All right. That sounds right. That, that, that sounds right. It's interesting that this fellow, who I assume is not a member of the Church of Christ, actually acknowledges that the the design of structure 
of churches of Christ is that which is found in the New Testament. That is interesting. Wouldn't you say, well, that's what I want to do. That sounds reasonable to me. If that's what they did, wouldn't that be what we want to do? Got to be the best way. huh? But, of course, contrast that to the hierarchy of denominational structure that exists in many local congregations. I mean, uh, many uh, religious organizations. And you wonder, where did that come from? It's clear, you know, when you think about regional headquarters, statewide headquarters, nationwide headquarters, worldwide headquarters of many denominations, you think, well, where did that come from? Because it, as this fellow accurately knows, it's not what we read about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, churches were independent and autonomous. Uh, so, again, and he says, what binds us together is not any kind of organic structure. Yep. What binds us together is that we simply all try to believe and teach what the Bible does. But we are independent local congregations. There's no, as he said accurately, there's no primary headquarters of the church, no organization superior to the elders of each local congregation. It gets back to that whole restoration thing and, and adhering solely to the Bible. Where do we read about any type of earthly headquarters in the Bible? Where would it be located? How would it be organized? How would it work? How would the officers be appointed? We, 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 if we were to, if we were to implement any of that, we'd be going on our human reasoning. We'd be stepping out and stepping away from what we're, the scriptures we're be going beyond the scriptures, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and well, so, I think we ought to have a board of directors and there ought to be, I don't know, there were 12 apostles. Let's, let's have 12 people on the board of directors. That makes sense to me. Well, it's not what this, we can't yeah. read about in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, Kent says the New Testament pattern requires that local churches of Christ be autonomous and independent without centralized control. That's how they were in the New Testament. Read the, and, read the, and again, as you were saying, Jay, we wouldn't have any authority to do it otherwise. No. Chris in Georgia says, correct, as demonstrated in the Word of God. All right. Now, that's all we can read about is the local church being uh, led by the elders of the church. First Peter chapter 5 tells us about that. That, uh, that, that the churches were autonomous. These elders were not in some kind of governing body over multiple churches. Yeah, let me read that real quickly, Jacob. First John chapter 5. Well, you know, why, why do we insist on this autonomy? Well, because in First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter says to the elders, Feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So the the elders of local churches were limited in oversight to the churches where they were. Take the oversight, feed the flock of God, which is among you. Not any any more than that, not any beyond that. So that's why we believe in local church autonomy. All right. So um, we, and, and, and again, you can't read about anything else in the scripture. So beyond that, you're going to go on human wisdom, human think so's. And by default, when you do that, it's divisive. And the, and the, the ploy of this, uh, of this idea that we go back to the scriptures is that if we will just do that, if just follow what the scriptures teach, then we can be unified. Yeah. Because if I say, you know what, we need to have a, a we need to have a, a centralized governing body, over all the churches, and it needs to be 
in Columbia, Tennessee. And Kyle says, no, I don't think so. I think it ought to be down in Florida somewhere. Or he wants it out there in Prim Springs where he lives. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, there ought to be 12 people on the board of directors. And Kyle says, no, I think 13 is a better number. You can't, get, you can't get a stalemate if there's an odd number. And so we, we immediately, we go on, on, when we go on man's wisdom, we immediately divide it. Yeah. We have to have an absolute standard, and that standard is God's word. Exactly. All right. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, the Church of Christ are autonomous. We are confusing definitions as the term church means the called out and has reference to the body of Christ, of which there is only one. There's only one worldwide body of Christ. However, local assemblies are autonomous, independent of each other, and self-governing. All right. Uh, Dwight, uh, just and then Michelle, just echo in, this is true. Each church of Christ is autonomous, and Mohan says it's true as well. Again, okay. it's what the scriptures teach, yeah. and that's what we're going to be committed to. Exactly right. All right. I think the next one's real quick. We can knock this out in a hurry, Jacob. Number four, there are over 15,000 individual churches of Christ. I don't know. That's that, part that, of the, that that's part of the deal. Not. That may be true or not. I don't know. He says, the most current reliable estimation notes that more than 15,000 individual churches of Christ uh, exist. The Christian Herald, uh, which is a publication that publishes statistics regarding all churches, says that the total fellowship of churches of Christ is now about 2 million. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I wouldn't, and I really wouldn't know where to go to start making that determination because we're, what we're just talking about, we're independent and autonomous. And by the way, we are not speaking to the defense of any congregation that uses the name Church of Christ. All we can speak to is what we're trying to do locally here, right? And so we we can, wow, there's 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 a Church of Christ out there in Iowa where Dwight is. It must be good if it's where the name Church of Christ. No, it may not be good. We don't know. We don't, we, we're not, we're not aware of what they're doing. We're autonomous congregation the church across town yeah are they faithful or not uh, well, no, we don't no. know it's not our responsibility yeah uh here's what kent says as far as the number of local churches of christ we do not completely know the perpetu- perpetuity of the lord's church is not based upon an unbroken chain of succession going all the way back to pentecost in acts 2 such a continuance of the New Testament church is found upon the basis of the scriptures themselves. Whether individuals obey the gospel of Christ, the Lord adds them to his one true church in its universal extension. With these individuals, uh, when these individuals formulate themselves into local autonomous independent churches functioning scripturally in a collective manner, they constitute local churches of Christ. Whether any other Christians or local New Testament churches ever know about them or not, Luke 8 verse 11. Chris in Georgia says, one church, many congregations. You know, we've got a little semantical issue here because the word church in the New Testament is sometimes used to refer to all believers worldwide. And there's just one body of worldwide believers, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the term is used to denote separate, independent, autonomous local congregations. In Romans 16, 16, Paul said the churches of Christ salute you. He was talking about independent congregations. Uh, but he says there's one church, many congregations. Not sure how many congregations. 15,000 may be correct. Not sure. We don't know. And uh, Jim says, uh, again, confusing definitions. There's one 
only one church of Christ, the body of Christ. There are any number of local assemblies around the world. To be- which, which also can be called a church of Christ. The local assembly can be called a church of Christ. So you got to kind of make sure of the context you're using. Yeah, Romans sixteen sixteen tells it churches of Christ. So, um, yeah, the local the local bodies, local assemblies. There are any number of local assemblies around the world, he said. To be able to know the exact number would be a bit difficult, as some, because of persecution, do not advertise where they are. Yeah, that's true. All right. And Dwight and Michelle says, not sure of this. Wikipedia says there's 41,498. Who knows for sure? <laughs> yeah, I don't well, know. Well, I don't know. I don't know who you're going to go with on that. And then uh, Mohan says, we don't know exactly how many churches there are, since there may be many house lords churches across the world when two or more disciples of Jesus gather together and believe and practice the New Testament. That is a church. Okay. All right, thank you, Mohan, for that. All right, let's grab our break. When we come back, we'll have to go fast. The next one is we are to be governed by a plurality of elders. Let's talk about that after this week's bullet point. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. Every congregation has them. You know who they are. They're the ones who simply never miss an assembly. But more than this, they're the ones who are always Johnny on the spot when something needs done or someone needs help. These folks are the backbone of the local church, and they are the ones primarily responsible for accomplishing the essential work of the congregation. You've seen them even when you know they're feeling just awful, even when their jobs and various responsibilities have them completely covered up, even when they could easily be overwhelmed by personal grief or pain, even when circumstances have them totally swamped. Through all of these things, they still manage to make time for the Lord. They push through their illness. They keep on keeping on when many others would have given in and given up. You wonder, how do they do it? While the kind of individuals we're describing each have their own unique characteristics, it's clear that they all share one thing in common, their love and devotion for the Lord. It supersedes everything else in their lives. He is more important to them than their jobs, their families, or their hobbies. For them, minor aches and pains pale in comparison to the joy of doing His will. He is quite simply the most important thing in their lives, and they show it by how they live and what they do. For them, it's not mere lip service. It's the real thing, heartfelt, devoted service to their Lord and Master. One sister in her 90s who impressed everyone in the congregation with her faithfulness explained in these plain terms, quote, if I can get up, get dressed, and get to the doctor, and I've been doing a lot of that these days, then I can also get up, get dressed, and get to church services. Now, that's what we're talking about. That's how it gets done. We're thankful for all our brothers and sisters who set such wonderful examples for the rest of us. May their tribe increase. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. We're back on the virtual Bible study as we talk about 10 things to know about the Church of Christ. I want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com or check out Kyle's handiwork on the YouTube. College View live stream. Yep, yep. College View live stream. All right, uh, check it out. Some great work there. Um, all right, you, you, you can, you're, Kyle, you can fill up uh, your day with uh, lots of uh, good teaching there. Uh, you've got yeah. a lot of material out there. Absolutely, yeah. We got uh, workhorse. We the virtual Bible study here. You could actually fill up uh, a year, a couple of years worth of uh, study on. You know, we're on coming the up Bible on an anniversary on, yeah. of the virtual so. Bible study. 
won't be too far off, and we will have completed 15, 16. 16 full years. 16, 16 years. full years of the Virtual Bible Study coming up first Thursday in July. All right. So if you were to um, if you were to just listen to every one of those programs. Why you work 40 hours Yeah, a we week. had a listener who said that they'd actually done that. Yeah. Pretty amazing. You did that. It, it would take, if you just listened for 40 hours a week, it'd take you 20 weeks to get through it. Pretty amazing. Almost half a year. Almost six months. Five months worth of, wow, of work, of listening at work. Wow. I don't know what it would do to your productivity, but you could give it a try. We're looking at an Internet article on Christianity.com. It says that the title of the article was Churches of Christ, 10 Things to Know About Their History and Beliefs. It's on Christianity.com. We're at point number five. Point number five, churches of Christ are governed by a plurality of elders. Each In each congregation, which has endured long enough to become sufficiently organized, there's a group of elders or pastors who serve as the governing authority. This guy, I mean, he's so right on so many of these ideas, using the idea that they're a pastor in that way. Yeah. I mean, he's got it. But there is something wrong with that statement I'm going to talk about in a minute. He says, these men are chosen by the local congregation on the foundation of qualifications established in the Scriptures. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. Might also add Titus chapter 1. He says elders are caretakers or supervisors who serve under the command of Christ according to the New Testament. I think all that's good. The one thing that I would quibble with is the expression they serve as the governing authority. We don't, the elders, we don't believe that elders have governing authority. Governing authority suggests the idea that they can pass laws and rules and regulations. Legislative powers. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and if, and so we would deny that. Uh, but they are the, the overseers, the elders. shepherding authority, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I like the expression he used. They are caretakers or supervisors who serve under the command of Christ. That sounds better. Yeah. But they are not a governing authority. But we do stress a plurality. And I think that's significant. And he noted that, that there's a plurality of elders in local congregations. And that's what Kent says. When collectively brought to scriptural maturity, local churches of Christ are overseen by a plurality of elders. Chris in Georgia says each congregation is governed by elders if they have men qualified. Notice people keep using the term plurally here. Elders, that's the way the scriptures use them, never a singularity. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says... um, Again, speaking of local assemblies, we do find that elders, plural, in Acts 14, verse 23, are qualified to serve as overseers, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and are appointed to those roles in the local assembly. Okay, right. And Dwight and Michelle in Iowa say, yes, any church that has elders must have at least two or more that shepherd uh, that autonomous church. And Mohan says, true, it's right. Now, now think about it. This guy understands that that's the way it was among first century churches. wonder why I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. Yeah. Why would I choose to be in a church that was overseen by one pastor who may or may not even know the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1? Why wouldn't I want to be a member of a church that's governed like they were in the first century? And it's amazing, this guy, look how simple it is here, as he's trying to explain what the churches of Christ believe and what they practice. He doesn't have to dig through volumes of catechisms and creeds and historical church documents. He just has to look at the Bible. And 
I don't know if this guy's a member of a Church of Christ, but it sounds to me like he's just stating the obvious. This is what the Bible says, and this is how they're organized. Yeah, I, I do not assume that this guy is a member of the Church of Christ. On this website are descriptions of numerous religious organizations. Church, the Churches of Christ are just one of those that are thus described. I, and I don't get the idea that this fellow is necessarily a member of the Church of Christ. But it is. It's striking that when he describes it, it's like, wait a minute. That's what I read in my Bible. It's simplistic. Yeah. Simple New Testament Christianity is one way you could describe it. That's what we're trying to practice. What did the Bible, they do in the first century? Let's do it. They had plural elders in the local church in the New Testament, first century. That's the way we want to do it. Exactly. It's that simple. Exactly. Not a crazy hard formula here. Okay, moving quickly forward. Number six, churches of Christ believe in a process of salvation. Now, I mentioned in our update, you might have to go to the to his article to actually understand what he means. Here's, let me read what he means. Churches of Christ teach that the process of salvation comprises several subsequent actions. By the way, I would quibble a little bit with that terminology. Churches of Christ do not teach this. The, the New Testament teaches that there is a process that one must follow in order to be saved. So I, I don't like the terminology the church of christ teaches mm-hmm. it's not what the church of christ teaches the church is not an authoritative body yeah. it's what the new testament teaches right. uh and, but here's the process one must be properly taught and here romans ten seventeen. one must believe and have faith hebrews eleven six. one must repent which means turning from one's former lifestyle and choosing god's way acts 17 verse 30 one must confess belief that Jesus is the Son of God, Acts 8.36. One must be baptized in the name of Jesus, Acts 2.38. One must live faithfully as a Christian, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. That's right on. Again, my only quibble is, who says so, the church or the Bible? The New Testament says so, not the church. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, what do our listeners have to say? Uh Kent says, Churches of Christ who are faithful to the New Testament pattern believe, teach, and practice that the New Testament process of salvation for non-Christians is found in faith in Christ and the gospel, repentance of sin, confession of Christ, and baptism for uh, unto in order to the remission of for, or forgiveness of sins. Maintaining salvation for the Christian is found in the repentance and confession of sin. Salvation for the Christian, eternal life in heaven is found in faithful living. That's what uh, that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, he's referencing principles here that are taught in the Bible, not in some kind of human creed book, but what the Bible teaches. Uh, Chris in Georgia says, we believe the Bible lays out the way of salvation, and in order to obtain it, we must obey what God says. Yeah. Okay, Jim says, um, he says, uh, oh, now, now let's see here. We find no such definition as process, a state of going on or being carried on, a method of manufacturing. In dealing with God's plan of redemption, we do find that the faithful preach the gospel to those outside the body of Christ. When those hear the gospel, confirm what they be- that they believe the gospel, and confess and will confess Jesus as Christ. Acts eight thirty six and thirty seven. Repent of their sins. They are baptized for remission of their sins. Acts two thirty eight. That we do this because this is what the scriptures reveal. Again, I think that's right. If we got to stress, it's not it's not what the church has decided. It's what the New Testament teaches and dwight and michelle said if you want to call hearing believing repenting confessing and being baptized a process of salvation then yes we have these things we we have things we have to do to in becoming a christian and they and they list those same verses and then remain faithful all the days of your life revelation 2 verse 10 uh mohan in chicago says if that means more than belief 
like repentance, confession, baptisms, then yes. So again, I think everybody's a little bit put off by the statement there's a process. Uh, we, we, we typically use the terminology, although it is our terminology. I mean, and, and I wouldn't, if someone wanted to quibble with the use of this wording, we call it the plan of salvation. If, and, and I've actually heard some people say, I don't know if we should call it a plan of salvation, because that's not a biblical expression. It, it is the, it, here's what we could say absolutely accurately. It is the Bible's answer to the question, what must I do to be God's saved? God's requirements for yep. salvation. Yep. All right. Uh, can we do the next one? Let's grab one. Oh, we're right at it. Let's grab our last break, and then we'll race to the top of the hour. Oh, we got four more to go. All right, don't go anywhere. We're going fast right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the Virtual Bible Study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. We're tracking the trends on the Virtual Bible Study. A recent survey found that 90% of Americans over 75 years old believe that you should treat others as you want them to treat you. But less than half of those under the age of 30 agreed with that concept. That information is via the Christian Post. The Word of God says in Matthew 7, verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program, going fast to the top of the hour. We have 14 minutes and four questions or go. topics to go. you Let's got go. about three minutes per okay, topic. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Number seven, churches of Christ baptized by immersion only. According to the, now get this, according to the Church of Christ Internet Ministries, the word baptize originates from the Greek word baptizo and precisely means to dip, to immerse, to plunge. In addition to the accurate meaning of the word, immersion is practiced because it was the tradition of the church in the apostolic era. Furthermore, only immersion corresponds to the representation of baptism as given by the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, where he describes it as a burial and resurrection. Well, listen, it's not just the Churches of Christ Internet Ministries who say baptize originates from the Greek word baptizo. All Greek authorities acknowledge that's where that word comes from. It's an anglicized word. They just took the Greek word and brought over, brought it over and made a new English word, baptize. And it does, by all unanimous Greek authority opinion, it means to dip, to immerse, to plunge. And what we might also clarify, it says in addition to the accurate meaning of the word, immersion is practiced because it was the tradition of the church in the apostolic era. I would quibble with that statement. It wasn't. That that sort of relegates it to just sort of like, well, well we that's just, what we it's did. our preference. Yeah. No, God, Jesus said to dip, plunge, or emerge. Go therefore into all the world. And dip, plunge, and immerse. Yes. Uh, so that's so, why we do it. That's why we do it. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, faithful New Testament churches of Christ, um, 
following the New Testament pattern, Kent says, recognize not only the correct design of baptism, they also recognize that the only authorized action for such is immersion in water. Chris in Georgia says, yes, uh, yes we practice immersion. Yes. Jim says, again, this is done. Uh, this is done because this is the only form of baptism revealed in the scriptures. Exactly. Right in the now, show. get this. It, it, it is what the word means. And it's what we see them doing in the New Testament. That's just all there is to it. So if I was going to sprinkle or pour water for baptism, I'd, I'd be going beyond or outside the scriptures because that, that's first, it's not what the word means. And secondly, we know it's not what they did in the first century under the guidance of the inspired apostles. Yeah, you're just making it up. Yeah. So why couldn't I say, well, you know what? I'm tired of this immersion stuff. I'm going to start squirting people with squirt guns. That, Red Kool-Aid in a squirt gun. In a squirt gun. That's how we're going to baptize people. Why, why not? If you get to change what it is. And this is what Dwight says. Dwight says this is true. Baptism is an immersion and nothing else. Sprinkling, pouring are man-made techniques of baptism and are ineffective because they don't follow the scriptures. Right. Mohan says it's true. We practice baptism by immersion only. Okay. Got to go. There's a lot more to say about that. We got to go, Jacob. Number eight. Acapella singing is the only music used in worship. The author says, as an outcome of the distinguishing plea of the church, which is a return to New Testament faith and practice, a cappella singing is the only music utilized in worship. This singing, unaccompanied by inanimate instruments of music, corresponds to the music used in the apostolic church. And for numerous centuries thereafter, it is believed that there is no jurisdiction for involving in acts of worship not found in the New Testament. This belief excludes the use of instrumental music along with the use of candles, incense, and other comparable elements. I tell you, that is right on. So singing unaccompanied by inanimate instruments of music corresponds to the music used in the apostolic church and for numerous centuries thereafter, which is historically true. We've talked about it numerous times. You can find those programs in our archives. There's no authority for the use of instrumental music. We know, and church historians agree unanimously that in the first century church, under the guidance of the inspired apostles and prophets, in the first century church they sang without musical accompaniment, which was actually a break from the Jewish practices in the synagogues. They sang no instruments. That continued for centuries. The, the, the addition of instruments of music was added later. There's no authority for it. You can't read about it in the New Testament. Well, if I want to be like the Christians were and the churches were in the first century, Acapella. You know, interesting, acapella is from Latin means as in the church. You know, so everybody, I think, knows what acapella music or acapella singing is, singing without instrumental accompaniment, acapella. That's a well-known expression. It comes from the Latin. It means as in the church. Uh, because that's the way because it was. Because that's the way it was in the church. And uh, here Kent says the New Testament only authorizes acapella sing- congregational singing in the worship assembly. Such is the limit of authorization, thus such is the limit of our practice. Chris says, uh, true, unless you have a congregation strain. If a congregation yeah. strain, they might bring in a musical yeah, instrument, right. but not if they're staying true to the New Testament pattern. Jim says, as confirmed by the scriptures, he references Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Dwight and Michelle says, acapella singing is the only music authorized in the New Testament Going beyond that, we have told you, uh, we have been told will cause us to fall into sin. Colossians three sixteen and 17 clearly teaches this. And then it's followed up with the idea that we have to do whatever we do in word or deed. Uh, we have to have authority. In the, in the name of the Thor of Jesus Christ, by his authority. Mohan uh, says true. True. We, right. we, we have a cappella music ex- exclusively. Now, 
This this next one, number nine, the churches of Christ have a distinctive plea. Here you would definitely have to look to the article to know what he means. Here's what he means when he says the churches of Christ have a distinctive plea. He says their distinctive plea is for spiritual unity based upon the Bible. In a segregated religious world, they believe that the Bible is the only plausible commonality upon which Christians can unite. The objective of their plea is religious unity of all believers in Christ following the basis of new of the New Testament and the method of restoration of New Testament Christianity. Amen. Man, that is right on. How would we have unity? In other words, he says our plea is for unity based upon going back to the Bible. How would we have unity otherwise? Because if I get to add in anything else other than what can be found clearly taught in the New Testament. But I don't want you uh, here. I like to add in my thing, but I don't want you to add in your thing. Well, we're going to be divided then. Period. Or if you add something that I don't like, we're going to be divided. Could we just agree that neither one of us will add anything? No. And we'll just do what the Bible says? We'd have to be unified. Then, then we'd be unified. And that we have to have a paramount of importance on this idea of unity. It has to be an extreme priority. It was an extreme priority for Jesus. You and, know, I've always, and we've made this point numerous times on the Virgin Bible, so you, you just have to be impressed. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed just before he was arrested, leading to his crucifixion. So you have to think this is really important on his mind, something very significant in his thinking. He says, neither pray I for these alone. He had just been praying for the apostles in the context. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Well, that would be us, right? We believe on Jesus through the words of the apostle. What did he pray for? That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So Jesus didn't, Jesus wanted a unity among his subsequent followers that would be like the unity that exists between him and the Father. That unity is a perfect harmony. There's not any difference or distinction between them. They agree on everything, exactly. That's the ideal that Jesus wants for his disciples. He doesn't want us to all be doing our own thing and then just sort of, you know, overlook that. Well, well, you do what you want. I'll do what I want. Uh, we're all Christians, you know. That's not the. That's not what Jesus wanted. We were denying the the sort of the last prayer request that Jesus made yeah. for unity of his yeah. followers. All right. All right. Here's what um, here's what Kent says. He says, uh, the true churches of Christ believe in the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. Because of such, our distinct plea is respect for the authority of the New Testament of Christ. If one cannot find authority for one's faith and practice in the word of God, such views and practices must be rejected. Thank you, Kent. We agree with that. Chris says, God commands unity. We are simply trying to convey the message and obey. All right. And uh, Jim says, uh, churches of Christ, uh, see, the plea of the Bible and obedience to its commands should be the plea of all. Who confessed oh, yeah, He said before, it's sad to think that this is the case because but it's distinctive that the he says, because the plea of the Bible and obedience to his commands should be the plea of all. It shouldn't this shouldn't be our distinctive plea. That's his point there. We shouldn't be the only ones who are begging for that. Yeah. Uh, 
who, uh, so denominationalism exists because there are too many pleas which do not conform to the God's word. Yeah, good point, Jim. And uh, Dwight and Michelle said uh, the plea we have is pleading with the world to obey God and his will. Also, as was stated in this article, we have a plea for unity among the brethren. Philippians 2, verse 2 says, Fill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Ephesians 4, verse 5 says, There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Unity in the Lord's church is of most importance. Okay. Uh, Moan said he wasn't actually sure what the author meant by that. And again, you'd have to go to the text of the article to pick that up. But Again, I, I really like what Jim said there. It's a sad thing to say that this is our distinctive plea, that it's our distinctive plea to have spiritual unity based upon the Bible. That's what he said. He says our distinctive plea is for spiritual unity based upon the Bible. And I really have to appreciate what Jim said. It's a sad religious world wherein that makes us distinctive to be pleading for that. And if you're somewhere that that is not the goal, then perhaps you're in the wrong spot. Yeah. Perhaps you're someplace where they've gone beyond the scriptures, where they're teaching things that, by definition, are going to cause division. Yeah. Uh, Think about that. We're just all but out of time. We we, we made it, Jacob. We made it to number 10, the last one. And this one is really just probably is, is is a throwaway. He says, most members of the Church of Christ live outside the United States. He goes on to explain, churches of Christ in America make up slightly less than half of its worldwide membership. There are more than one million members of the churches of Christ in Africa, roughly one million in India, 50,000 in Central and South America. Total worldwide membership is now over three million with around 1.3 million in the U.S. Again, I don't know how we know know that. I don't know how we know that. but you know the fact that it that it is out that that there are numerous Christians and churches of Christ outside the United States is a good thing, which suggests that the gospel, the true gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ, has a worldwide appeal, and actually was to be taken to the whole world according to the Great Commission that Jesus gave. Yeah, uh, Kent says I cannot state with absolute knowledge how many live inside or outside of our nation's yeah. borders. And again, it's because we are independent of one another. We're not. We're not. We don't have a reporting system to a worldwide headquarters. Nobody faxes in the uh, attendance rosters right. every. And uh, Chris says, uh, I would not be surprised at all if this is true, especially today, where America seems to be hard-hearted and unreceptive to the truth. Well, he takes. In other words, there's more outside the U.S. than inside the U.S. because the U.S. is becoming an increasingly secular society, unfortunately. And Jim says again, this would be hard to know, but hopefully so, seeing that any who follow God's word and obey it in uh, conforming to his, to his plan of redemption can then become his children. One would hope that this is the case anywhere in the world where the gospel has free course to grow is the field, uh, the vineyard which is greater than the United States. Uh, Dwight says, not sure on this point. Wikipedia agrees, but also says there's no reliable counting system. And Mohan agrees as well. Okay. So, all right. Unbelievable. We've made it through all ten of those. I thought that was really an interesting sort of take on churches of Christ. And again, I was pleasantly surprised as I read through that. Again, we had some disagreements with some of the terminology and wording, but... In many respects, he accurately described what we believe, which, as we've tried to point out over and over again tonight, Jake, it's a common sense approach to the Scripture. 
pretty simple. Uh, and maybe some of our listeners, maybe this was sort of a new idea to some of our listeners, maybe some things that raised some questions. We'd love to talk to you at any time, questions at collegeu.com. Yeah. Uh, if you think our approach to the scriptures is wrong, you think maybe that we need to think about something differently, send us an email, questions at collegeu.com. We'd love to hear from you at any time. Uh, what about it, Kyle? Any final thoughts from you? Oh, that's a good study. I think it's people need to know about what we're about. Uh, we're not trying to change. We're not about man's creeds. It's about the Bible. So All good right. program. Hey, wait, a breakthrough in the chat room. Dwight and Brian got in the chat room just to just say basically uh, give a, a, a tip of the hat. But uh, we, I, I was going to say, I was about ready to say, I think it's the first time ever we didn't have any comments in the chat room, and Dwight and Brian made sure that didn't happen. I thought maybe the chat room was broken there for a minute. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you guys for being on the other end of the line tonight. Thank you for listening. Whenever you listen, either live or in the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Questions at collegeu.com. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word tonight. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.